Forbidden and banned, the bane of bureaucrats, exposing mainstream media's weapons of mass distraction. Flying under the radar and dropping truth bombs on tyranny. It's Liberty Now. Kia ora, hello, and welcome to Liberty Now, the podcast for discerning minds and common sense. We'll look at the big picture behind the false narratives of the dying corrupt media. Please be sure to subscribe to this show on your favorite podcast player app. Don't worry about taking notes while you listen. You can get all the links, files, and show notes for this episode at libertynow.com. And my guest today, I'm really excited to talk to. It's uh, been a while, I've been trying to connect, and uh, he's a super busy man. Brendan Malone, how are you doing today? Look, uh, John, I, I, I'm great, and it's good to be back, and I have to apologize to you and probably to your audience. You have been trying like a good and faithful <laughs> servant to try and get me on the show for many, many weeks, and I've just been so busy, Oh yeah. finally we're able to make it happen, so that's good. No, that's super, and uh, I'm just honored to have you on. Thank you. Um, so what, what's, uh, what's been the biggest thing you've been working on lately? I know you're out there doing God's work. Um, what's, what's the biggest thing for you now? Uh, look, I've, I've got a few things actually on the go. I've been uh, doing quite a bit of speaking at conferences and um, universities and schools around New Zealand, and I'm about to actually embark on um, some time overseas in Australia as well. Oh, good. So it's pretty busy. I'm, in fact, I'm already looking ahead to next year, and big chunks of next year's schedule are already blocked out. So some exciting new things happening next year. And I'm also looking at trying to get something regular online going for men as well. Nice. So there's a, there's a bit there's a bit happening at the moment. Good for you. Um, yeah, cool. So what what's been the the biggest topic that you've uh, been lecturing about? I think for me, the biggest one that people and and certainly the one that people have expressed the most interest in, whether they've either encountered it at a conference I've spoken to and didn't quite understand what they were you know going to hear, or whether they've specifically been asking for the topic has been um, really around the the issue of uh, the modern secular mind, the worldview that shapes that modern mind. Why is it that people think the way they do about uh, ethical issues, about human dignity, the human person? And for a lot of people, it's been really, uh, well, the feedback I'm receiving is that for them, it's been really enlightening and enlivening to actually understand that when they engage with people, no one is subjective. Everyone has, sorry, no one is objective. Everyone has a subjective worldview, even if they don't realize it. And that's sure. been really helpful for people understanding the different worldviews that are out there. Yeah. And I mean, if we're going to be intellectually honest, you know, I, I would say, even mm. though, you know, of course, my worldview is the correct one, uh, you know, I, I can't say that I am always objective. I do my best, you know. Yeah, yeah. But well, uh, and, and that's, that's the thing, though. The funny thing is, that that I think that even that idea rests on an assumption that's not correct. The assumption is that somehow in all things you're supposed to be objective. And I think what you should be is well, you should yeah. be a truth seeker. We should be just and charitable and virtuous in all things. But if you find the truth, you you cling to that absolutely. You say yes, this is absolutely true, and and I'm not letting it go because it's so profoundly good and true. Yeah, exactly. And that's that's what I really always try to get at, whether I like the truth or not. There, there always is only one truth, mm, um, right. and this whole idea of you know my truth and your truth is just a bunch of malarkey. And I can objectively say that there, there can only be one, <laughs> only one exactly. truth. <laughs> exactly. Well, the moment you say there's not only one truth, right? 
you've now created a single source of truth that there is right. not only one truth, right? So it's it's a self contradictory proposition. Yeah, I, I don't mean to contradict our former prime minister on that, but uh, I'm afraid I have to. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, that's right. Uh, so today's topic uh, is pride goeth before the fall. Um, mm. I'm quoting Proverbs sixteen eighteen, of course, and. The corollary to that is verse 19, better to live humbly with the poor than to share plunder with the proud. Uh, and th- this has been on my mind because, um, well, now month before last now, we had Pride Month, a whole month of pride uh, when Martin Luther King gets only one day. Um, I wanted to have a chat with you about this because uh, I really respect your insight and uh, you do try to look at it from, from all angles. Um, really enjoying your uh, podcasts on the dispatches, which by the way, folks, you should really check out on any of your favorite podcast apps, the dispatches with Brendan Malone, some really insightful stuff. Very kind of you to uh, say, mate. Very yeah. Um, so yeah, Pride Month, uh, just a little of the history. I was looking it up uh, before we get into it. It was uh, June 1999, U.S. President Bill Clinton declared the anniversary of the Stonewall riots every June in America as Gay and Lesbian Pride Month. Uh, Obama expanded Pride Month to include the whole LGBT community, and uh, that was in 2011. And in then 2017, Donald Trump declined to continue federal recognition, but later recognized it in a 2019 tweet. After taking office in uh, 2021, then Joe Biden recognized Pride Month and vowed to push for LGBT rights in the United States, uh, despite previously voting against same sex marriage and school education of LGBT topics in the Senate. Uh, That's just par for the course for somebody like Biden. He's flip flopped on so many things. And um, yeah, we could pull up some of his old racist comments too. It's um, pretty extraordinary how just completely 180 he has has been on so many things. Anyway, I, I say all that uh, because I'm, I'm guessing, Brendan, you too, are, you leave it up to the individual. Like wh- when it comes to consenting adults, you know, they can do whatever they want. We may not, uh, we, we may approve or disapprove of it, but it's, you know, up to consenting adults what, what they do. As with, uh, I think, Christianity, you know, it's, it's, uh, it's a choice that we're free to make, we're given. Where I get concerned is when it gets pushed into schools. And mm-hmm. it's, it's not just a matter of simple recognition of rights. It's put into the schools under the guise of education, but it, it's really graphically detailed indoctrination. Uh, this includes pushing literal pornographic materials into school libraries uh, and adult entertainment with kids. I'm referring to like the... Um, uh, drag queen story time for kids, which is not just innocent uh, stuff. I mean, there there have been uh, videos of some pretty explicit stuff in those too. In fact, uh, I'll include a link in this. I'm not going to show it here, but uh, there was an incident at one library uh, with rainbow dildo monkey. Uh, mm-hmm. You got to see the video to believe it. It's unbelievable. This is this is this is adult entertainment. Uh, whatever you want to say about it. it, is it's not for kids. And then we've also got uh, Chelsea Clinton uh, promoting Gender Queer, the book. And I, I only had to look at a couple pages of it before I just I had to look away. It's just 
completely adult stuff and completely inappropriate for anybody uh, under 18. I'm sure you are aware of, of a lot of this. You've, you've seen it in the media, Brendan. Um, oh, yeah, yeah, very much so. And it's, it's, uh, it's hard not to get that sense of a, um, as some have described it, almost a very hostile takeover. Uh, yeah, I mean, yeah. The, the flags go up. It's Flags are a symbol of victory and right, power right. and control and everything gets saturated. And it, the other thing for me is that, uh, like, is it even still a month anymore? It feels like it's ongoing. It right. just feels like we're still having conversations now two months later. And, right. and it's like, well, I thought it was one month. It went from, what, a day to a week to a month, and now it seems never-ending. Right. Um, would you agree, Brendan, that, you know, what consenting adults do with each other is their business, but it has no place in schools? I, I think yes and no. I think depends exact, it would depend on the context, what you're talking right. about okay. consenting adults doing. Because for me um, – the whole principle that that consenting adults idea is built on is a liberal principle rather than a conservative one. And it, it comes to us from John Stuart Mill, and it's his, his harm principle, which is basically that you should be free to do whatever you want as long as you don't cause harm to another. Now, initially that sounds reasonable, but two things are important to understand. Number one is John Stuart Mill was not a conservative. He is absolutely, probably, almost certainly the first progressive. He wants to progress society away from and ironically, he's also quite happy to use anti-liberal measures on societies who aren't really willing to, to conform to his view. He says that that would actually be justified if they're savages, etc. So uh, he's a sort right. of interesting, contradictory character. But the, the second problem, this is the big problem, is that the, the harm principle assumes that you can actually see or you're only really going to uh, observe harms that are in the immediacy of the individual and their actions. So if I, as an individual, start swinging an axe around a room, it's pretty obvious that I'm going to cause harm, right, if the room's right. full of people. And I can't say, well, I'm not harming anybody because I clearly am. So some harms are very obvious, but some harms are not immediately obvious. And liberalism, because it focuses on the individual and their wants and desires and doesn't look much beyond that, doesn't take into account the way um, societies and uh, sort of the long-term harms and wider-scale harms that can actually uh, fall upon a society if you just don't have any basic standard of virtue or um, virtuous behaviour and you just say it's a free-for-all. And so right. there's there's a, there's a risk in that. So a really good example of this where we see this very clearly is with euthanasia. So euthanasia initially doesn't seem to be an issue where there's any harm as long as the adult consents to it, right? Everyone right who's uh, can sort of say, okay, well, I think I can see a scenario where this would, you know, no one is being harmed in a sense. Now that's leaving aside the question of, well, can you really give full consent when you're petrified of dying a painful death? That's, that's a whole nother philosophical debate, but right. let's assume you could. The, the problem though is that legalizing euthanasia doesn't just affect the individuals who might want to use it. It affects the whole society. It affects medical ethics Vulnerable people get caught up in that because they are now living lives that, according to our society, we've now socially declared to be uh, so uh, unworthy of living that we'll help you to end your life if you want to end it. Yeah, of course. You know, and other people will say, no, your life is too valuable. So that has a, a that sort of value judgment affects everybody. So there's a harm right. there. And that's why you see wherever you've legalized euthanasia, you see uh, it's not when, uh, sorry, it's not if, it's when, basically you end up with vulnerable people being wrongfully killed. Because right. the system starts moving that way. So there's a harm that doesn't appear initially around the individual. And so I'd say the same is true of sexuality. And we need to ask questions about, well, what does it look like that that 
tension that I think we've abandoned, but which has to exist between a society where you respect human dignity and you don't ever enslave or treat people unjustly, but at the same time, you also want to have um, an expectation of certain societal norms of behavior around sexuality and sexual identity, well, right. which, and which have to have to sort of keep society together. Yeah. And the, the left seems very comfortable with, and, and maybe um, sort of embedded in Marxism, right, where they don't want any norms for society, no. but, uh, you know, hard pressed to, to pin them down on a definition of, uh, perversion or values or morals anyway. Well, well, the, the reason there's, there's two things going on. One is the, the Marxist aspect of it is that um, if you have, if you think about sexual norms and sexual virtue, what is it going to be built on? It's going to be built on some sort of vision whereby if not marriage, something that looks an awful lot like marriage, it's going to be a lifelong commitment to just one person. It's not going to be promiscuous. It, what, and what it means is that the individual is now part of another first prior community that exists prior to the state, the family. And, right. and for Marxism, it can't have any competitors. It can't have other communities that compete against the collective. Right. So that, so, And this is something that you see very much with, um, with a guy called Wilhelm Reich. And Wilhelm Reich, uh, aside from the disturbing nature of his upbringing, he's a guy who um, he – he caught his mother having an affair with his teacher. And so he, he told his father about what had been going on. And then his father treats his mother so badly that she commits suicide. And then the father becomes distraught about the loss of his wife. He tries to kill himself by walking out into a frozen lake and dying of, uh, well, dying on the spot, but it doesn't work. And he dies a slow drawn out death of pneumonia. Wow. And so this is this guy's upbringing. It's absolute oh mess. And, and there's these weird deviancies that are part of his childhood. He then, ends up meeting Sigmund Freud. He's studying medicine Ooh. some years later. He meets Sigmund Freud and he decides, ah, I'm going to change my career. I'm not going to be a doctor. I'm going to be one of these um, psychoanalysts, the second generation under Sigmund Freud. And he's actually, by the way, because he's a committed student of Marxism, he is the first guy, uh, he doesn't get credit for it, but he is the first guy, even before the Frankfurt School, to marry up Karl Marx and Sigmund Freud, to put the two together. Wow. And, and, and so he's a, this now. What's important about uh, Wilhelm Reich is Wilhelm Reich is the guy who came up with the phrase the sexual revolution. It was his concept. Really? Um, so yeah, some scholars and academics say that he is so pivotal. He's they say he's like a midwife who helped to give birth to the sexual revolution. Wow! And it, so he's a guy who is a big proponent of adolescent sexuality and adolescent sexual rights. So there's that child sex stuff again. Right. Not only that, but. It's really important to understand what he means because it's, it gets to exactly what you're talking about when he says sexual revolution. When we think of the sexual revolution, we tend to think, oh, revolutionary ideas about sex. That's okay. not what he meant. What he meant was we need to use sex as a tool in the Marxist revolution. And what we need wow. to do is use sex to pull down the old Christian vision of family and right. marriage and because that's that's uh, he believes it was the greatest form of repression. It holds us back and it prevents people from rising up in their rightful Marxist uprising. So you can right. see how pivotal all of this is. And then on top of that, you've got the liberal idea of the autonomous self-choosing individual, but that fails to account for the fact that we do live a communal existence and even our sexuality, there's a a communal component, even if we don't recognize that, it, it sort of flows out. The most obvious way, of course, is when you have kids. Right. Your kids are then like these gifts that flow out of your sexuality into the wider community. In fact, they become the wider community. So it's it's those, I think those factors are missing, the, 
the, the communal and the virtual, right. uh, sorry, the communal and the virtue is sort of missing whenever we have these conversations. Right. And, and that begins to make a little more sense of, you know, why they're coming after our kids. Now, I know a lot on the left would say, we're not coming after any kids. We're only talking about consenting adults. But I mean, you go to any pride parade and you're going to hear chants of, we're coming for your kids. We're coming for your kids. We're not here to shop. Well, well even over the weekend, know. look, I, I don't know if you heard over the weekend. So Nicola Willis was asked at a public meeting late last week, the deputy leader of the National Party, um, you know, what, what do you think about sex education and woke sexuality ideas in, in schools? And she said, I think as a mother, I think it's the responsibility of the parents to oversee this. And on Twitter, <laughs> there were the progressive fringes just blew up. And, and as I commented on Twitter over the weekend, the reason they were so hostile and they just blew up over this very common sense idea that parents should actually be the ones doing this right. or overseeing it right. for their own children, they just they went they went apoplectic about that. Why? Because it means that they they possibly face the threat of losing access to young minds, which they want to shape ideologically. Right. And, and it's also anti-collectivism, that, isn't it? I mean, that, you know. that's right. And and they and they depend on that access to young minds, I believe, to shape worldviews. They, you know, th- 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 there's no secret. This is nothing conspiratorial. Uh, that, that's why those right. of us who are on the side of goodness and truth, we should also care about shaping and forming young minds in goodness and truth as well, and not just be sort of ambivalent or laissez-faire about that because they're, this really does matter for the future of a society. Absolutely. And, you know, I, I'm sure you agree there, there is an agenda to um, shoehorn in pedophilia into this whole movement um, when it comes to, you know, uh, school education with the, the books like gender queer, for example. And it's not just about getting a balanced view or trying to prevent prejudice uh, against a, another group. This is like adult material for kids. Yeah. Yeah, I think there's, yeah, I think there's clearly enough evidence now to say, even if you're a skeptic, at the very least, you'd say there's a prima facie case here that there are other groups who have attached themselves and who are definitely trying for a, uh, a child sexualization of some form or other. Yes, I think mixed in with that also is another group whose boundaries have become so blurred. They have such an inauthentic um, and false anthropology of the human person. They don't understand why this is so disastrous and it's a bad idea and why children aren't uh, sexual creatures. Uh, there's a latency period before they develop, you know, usually post-puberty around that time into, uh, um, you know, human sexuality It's and, and, and why right. it's actually really harmful to to treat them and for a whole lot of reasons and, and, and not least of which is their own inability to actually grapple with the reality of human sexuality before they're ready to do that. So there's this right. sort of, I think what's happening is you've got these bad actors combined with um, what you might call, and I don't mean this as an insult, but useful idiots, people who don't really <laughs> right. understand, who don't have an authentic vision of reality. And so they've very, they got bad ideas in there. They're, yeah. they're very vulnerable then. Um, and bad actors are more than happy to say, yeah, well, we'll join you in your crusade. And and by the way, those bigots don't want, uh, um, you know, minor attracted persons, as they claim to be, right. uh, you know, involved. That That's unjust too, isn't it? And people go, oh, yeah, maybe it is because they don't have a good solid basis to actually understand why that would right. well, be a problem. You know? w- once you uh, get into this relativistic mindset, you know, there is just no end to it. You know, th- if no. there's no absolute truth, uh, mm. everything's gray and you can justify anything. And well, um, you, d- you don't have societal structures either. Like um, right. Philip Reef is an interesting character. Philip Reef was a sociologist. He's an atheist. 
And uh, he wrote a book called My Life Among the Deathworks. And he's like, he's considered one of the best sort of scholars on Sigmund Freud and guys like that. And um, he said, basically, fascinating commentary that he had for an atheist. He said, you can't have a society, and this is a very simple but very important observation, you can't have a society unless you have prohibitions. And when you think well, about it, you're like, oh, right. of course. Like, you you not, have to have words, a fence around a yard or yeah, yeah, it's yeah, yeah, not yeah, a yard. Exactly. It, it's, exactly. <laughs> so you can't have a triangle unless you've got three sides there. Right. You've got the boundaries. <laughs> right, it's right. so simple you can't but define, so yeah. profound. Right? And that's what I you're love saying. That. Like, without, without the structure, you can't have – and you know what? He, the really interesting bit was he said those prohibitions – have to come from religious commandments. And he believed primarily the Ten Commandments was the fundamental basis. So absolutely fascinating character. But he, yeah. he basically looked at, at, at Freud and co. And he said, I can't see how this will end in anything other than this structureless, in other words, the destruction of a society because it will have no shape. Right. I mean, in the back of my mind, you know, as, as we talk about all these things, I just keep thinking anarchy, anarchic society, you yeah. know. Well, in a sense, too, the interesting thing about anarchy is, and this is an interesting philosophical point, at least you'd say with anarchy, like an, when you say you identify something as being anarchy, that's a recognition that there is a structure and you've mm. fallen outside, it's fallen into chaos. But the, the, I think what we're grappling with now is an even greater crisis is that people don't even believe there's a structure. And so, you know, you, you can't even point to anarchy and call it anarchy anymore because you don't, you're like, nah, it's just their choice, you know? Right. And it's just, that that's even worse when people have no such a broken down sense of who they are as human persons and no sense of meaning that anything goes, then, you know, it's, that's a real crisis when you don't even understand what reality should be. Right, right. Well, and, and so no surprise that, you know, we're going beyond, you know, gay and lesbian rights into this whole trans movement. And this is, a, uh, it seems a recent phenomenon. I mean, there's always been cross-dressers and, you know, confused um, people. And I mean, there, there are those people in societies, uh, yeah. though rare. But this, this has been much more than that and, and so much more recently that it, uh, it even goes, you know, beyond trans into Satanism now. Mm. Um, it's well, all being. I think what you've, I think what you've got is you've got two, two things that have come together in a perfect storm. So one is a very extreme ideology that has completely, effectively abandoned reality on the back of postmodernism, which says um, that like the big postmodernist idea is that there are no meta narratives; they're all unreliable. So what's a meta narrative? It's a big story that explains the world. And so religious meta narratives, the big story that explains the world, no, they're out. But you know what else is a meta-narrative? Science, according to postmodernism, is a meta-narrative. <laughs> so that's out. Yeah. Uh, language itself is a meta-narrative. That's out. So you you're all of a sudden realize, holy moly, this is an absolute mess. It's chaos, and people don't recognize it as being chaos, and they don't think there's any cure for the chaos. And so all they're left with is, well, I'll just create my own self and my own meaning. And you know what has come along at just the right time to enable the worst excesses of that is uh, basically – um, pharmaceutical, pharmacological technologies. Oh, like yeah. hundred years ago, you could never turn off puberty. You can do that right. now. And surgical. Uh, you and, couldn't yeah. carry out surgeries like that like we're doing today, 200 years ago. You can now. So that's, it's like this perfect, uh, in the worst kind of way, this right. mix of factors that's really done a lot of harm. And it's, the thing is, is, is it's being sold as uh, something that will lead people to greater happiness, uh, you know, mm. in a, a you know, societal utopia. 
And what I don't think the general public really understands, and I would really urge people, you know, if, if you haven't already thought about this, please just stop and ask yourself. I don't care what side of the spectrum you're on. What does gender affirming care really mean? Besides puberty, puberty blockers, you know, for kids, um, the, the surgeries that parents are putting their kids into, this is not even um, adults making their own decisions. The, the whole point of parents is to assist children to be able to make responsible decisions, you know, later in life. And they're making decisions for them on behalf of the kids in a confused world where they're going under a knife, boys and girls. And, you know, it's, it's, it's pretty graphic. I won't post it here, but I, if anybody hasn't thought about it or wants to see a, an example of what this surgery looks like, um, the, these are horrific. Just, um, I, you know, you can't even fathom how bad this is for kids. And they think that they're going to become just transition into this other gender and yet they're never going to have, uh, they're never going to gain sexual satisfaction. Uh, there's a gender affirming surgeon who even admits this, and I'll put a link to that article there. Do you think people even think about that, take that into consideration? Oh, it's, it, I think we've created a real mess in a sense in that regard, because um, it, it's, I think a lot of, it's becoming more obvious now. We're starting to hear detransition stories. And we're starting to hear stories yeah. from people who, I read one just, it was heartbreaking the other day, this young woman who had been put on this path, I think she'd probably be about 18 or 19 now, put on the path about three or four years ago and had taken um, various uh, hormone blockers and, and all the rest of it. Voice had changed. I only discovered recently myself actually that your voice doesn't change back after you do the, the testosterone thing like oh, that. Oh, wow, so, really? So it's, it's like it's it's pretty serious level of permanent scarification and change to the body it's sort of you know and this person is now saying i regret this and i'm scared and and my my it's not simply just saying oh my childhood was robbed her very femininity was robbed from her and and that's just that you think about the evil of that what that represents now on top of that we've also got i think the reality of the parents and educators and others who maybe thought they were doing the right thing who enabled and supported this. So I'm not talking about people who were nefarious. They they just they followed bad advice from popular culture. Right. They, they thought, thought they were doing they were the right helping. thing, but they'll never yeah. admit that. They they can't psychologically. No, no. How, how do you? You, you how can't. do you say, oh, I, look, I got this so badly wrong, and maybe even my own child, or I'm responsible for another person's child being maimed because of this. I, I don't know how you ever admit to that without yeah, some I, amazing well, and Christian I, grace, basically. I, yes, yes. And and I don't want to go, you know, off topic, but I mean, the, you you get to a psychological point that we're seeing this in, in other areas too. Uh, you know, people that are, have been so pro-vaccine uh, and haven't been willing to look at the, you know, the damage that it's been causing. Whereas it, I was just talking to a, a guest um, in my last interview where, you know, he working with insurance companies and the actuaries show that we're seeing huge increases of death worldwide. Um, there's a book out there that, uh, I, I'm going to be reading, uh, called cause unknown. Um, you know, none of the media will admit what's going on there, but I mean, again, the same idea, how has a parent or a caregiver, could you ever admit psychologically that you've done this tremendous harm, you know? And, yeah. and so we, 
Well, I think also probably two becomes in a sense uh, like a sunk cost fallacy where you're like, well, we're already right. on this path. We might as well keep going. Or you maybe even think, well, yeah, okay, hindsight, but it's too late now. Uh, right. Let's make the best of it. You know what I mean? Like it, it just, it becomes this, like it's a, it's a freight train, a hundred right. miles an hour. And once you're on it, it's really hard to get off. Yes. Yeah. Um, so, uh, I'll be respectful of your time, Brendan. If you if you need to get, uh, just let me know. But um, this brings me to a point uh, that's kind of in the bigger picture, and I don't I don't know if you've thought about this as well. But the the cause of all this um, is a major contributor to global population decline. I mean, that's just mm. subjectively. I mean, objectively, fact. Um, you know, obviously, people that undergo these surgeries will never be able to re- reverse them. They will not reproduce. Um, and so, you know, there and there are uh, writings by globalists, and there are uh, well-funded global uh, NGOs putting a lot of money into this, who have also had the opinion that there are too many people in the world. Um, so, do you do you see this uh, in your research as part of the uh, global depopulation plan? I, I don't know. Look, I, I I'm and you probably as a regular listener to my podcast now. I'm I'm. Although I enjoy a good, I doth enjoy a good um, conspiracy theory. Right. Um, I'm not always on board with everything. Yeah. Um, and I think my my big principle is why ascribe to malice, what is basically just the the vulnerability of the the sinful human condition, you know, and and particularly power. And once you've got a hold of power, you you'll do just about anything to keep it. And you don't need much of a conspiracy there. You know, you, you can you can be an absolute fool who makes very bad mistakes that do a lot of harm. So I, I yeah. think, and but at the same time, you're right. There are some people who absolutely, and it's been going on for quite some number of decades now. And at very, uh, you'd say elite levels, um, the Rockefeller family, for example, it's no yeah. secret. We've had Harvard academics actually written entire books about this, mm-hmm. about the fact that they had a depopulation agenda for particularly Africa and Asian countries. There's a very racist approach to those countries. They believe they were having well, too many. Yeah, babies. precisely. Yeah. And they, and they worked hard to, to reduce their birth rates. Yeah. So, so you've got that. But as far as the global problem, I think this is more like um, um, Brave New World, where mm. they've walked themselves into a hedonistic dystopia. They they have the certain technologies and certain attitudes have all come together at the right moment to effectively leave us uh, thinking that we didn't really need to have kids. Right. And and we've aborted too many in this country. There's no doubt about that. We, we, we are just about to reach the 600,000 yes. abortion marks since oh the late gosh. 1970s in New Zealand. Now, now wow. um, some people might remember uh, a few years back when John Key was running, he, he made a very interesting statement. It wasn't anything to do with abortion. It was the economy. And he said at that point, we were 500,000 people short in our, our, our economic needs in here. We needed another 500,000 people. Well, at that point, we had just crossed the 500,000 abortion mark in New Zealand. Interesting so, that. So, we, yeah, so, so there's those factors there that have definitely contributed. They're not having enough kids. And it clearly is. It does seem to be attitudinal as well. Like other countries have tried, and they're trying all sorts of ventures to desperately turn this around. And they're incentivizing it. You know, we'll give well, you money. We'll, we'll, you know, but it's not working. Yeah, it's, it's just not working. Well, the, the, the 
Yes, yeah, there, there are so there are so many uh, mm-hmm. factors. Uh, it's not mm-hmm. just the the fact that um, you know people undergoing transgender surgery won't reproduce. Mm-hmm. They're also killing themselves at record rates. Um, yeah. I was looking up uh, just you know cross checking, and and even Newsweek's fact checkers couldn't deny it. They could only spin it uh, to say that I think something like forty two percent have attempted suicide. I don't know what the actual suicide rate yeah. is, but I mean you could imagine somebody who has, uh, who will never be able to attain any sexual satisfaction, you know, when they, when that's what they seem to be all about, what they're promising, and then they'll never get that. Not, not a well, huge... Well, you, you imagine, if, imagine if you were told this is the answer. This will make you a whole person. <laughs> right. And then you get there, and initially it sort of masks the feeling that you're not a whole person, and then quickly you realize it hasn't done that at all. Yeah. Uh, I, I read a, um, a recent... Um, uh, article um, in a journal actually um, a couple of months ago about how people often develop other dysphorias. So they're oh, now right. talking about things people who have transitioned, they have height dysphoria because the male height, generally males are taller than females, but it doesn't right. disappear. It, right. You don't suddenly become shorter just because you've <laughs> changed your, your identity. Right. Um, and, and so that's a voice was another one, voice dysphoria. And um, they're saying we've got to do something about these problems. And there are even people in this article, they highlighted one uh, person who was talking about the idea of trying to have some sort of leg shortening surgery. And you're thinking, Ooh, this is just madness. Like, wow. But, but, but so what happens end? is you get to this thing where you think, exactly, and you think you've made whole, you get there, you're not whole. And what is a, a broken person who doesn't, who is told this is the only way, there is no other answer, the answer you've been offered doesn't deliver. And we've got some really shocking examples. This has been going on for quite a while. There was a case of a lady in uh, Belgium who was told by her family consistently, she was raised by her family, had other brothers and sisters, I think, and but yeah, other other members, other siblings, I uh, can't remember the exact genders of them, but she she was told um, she was like an ugly daughter and they never wanted a daughter. And, and wow. so she had a transgender uh, or transsexual operation. And this is, we're talking like, I think 15 years ago, this might've happened when she had her op. So qu- quite a while ago. And then um, the, the surgeon botched the operation. And she said, I'm, I'm even more ugly than what I am before, and my psychological suffering is such that I want euthanasia. And the Belgian government approved her euthanasia. And, wow. and, and so um, now she's not – there's another – right now there is a, a, a male who identifies as a, a trans woman who had the surgery and has said, I've been left in constant pain in my genital region, yeah. and they're right now fighting for euthanasia in Canada. So. Right. It's just it's it's a degree of madness and evil that you it's all, and I think part of the problem is we're almost like frogs boiling in pot. We don't recognise because we've been so desensitised over so yeah. long. Yeah. When 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 a small incremental change we happens, we fail to recognise just how dramatic that actually is in the right. bigger picture. Yeah. No, I I agree. It's it is insane, and um, I I would like to. Um, bring us to a close on a, a little bit of a hopeful note. Uh, there, there does seem to be a greater awakening to the importance of this and, and a pushback, um, you know, corporations that have gone woke. Um, you know, we, we can talk all day about, you know, their motives for that. Um, but just a, a quick bullet list. Uh, the king of beers, now the queen of beers, uh, Bud Light, <laughs> has plummeted to number 14 in America. Used to be the number one beer um, uh, side note, I never liked it anyway. 
<laughs> yeah, uh, I have to say I tried it a few times. It never, never it, it never was good. I don't know what people were thinking, but yeah, um, it was ahead of popularity thing. It was in all the movies right. and shows, wasn't it? Well, and they just completely destroyed that. Um, <laughs> then uh, the movie Sound of Freedom just recently out that really highlights the problem of child sex trafficking just hit a hundred million dollars at the box office in the U.S. Uh, super popular country song right now. Try that in a small town is number yeah, one on iTunes song. and mm -hmm. Disney, you know, ostensibly the media for kids uh, because of their wokeism has lost nine hundred million dollars on their last eight releases. Mm -hmm. So don't forget Nigel Nigel Farage too in the UK who won his court case against the bank that debanked him over his views. Is and, that right? Uh, the, the C yeah, so the CEO, she's been sacked. So initially they said he didn't have enough money. It's a particular bank in the UK. You have to have, I think it's a million pounds of minimum. Right. He did have enough money. They said he didn't have enough money. That's why they debanked him. And then he was leaked an internal memo where they were talking about his political views. They didn't like his political views. That's why they oh. debanked him. And wow. then they, um, the CEO also released his private information to the media, leaked that to a journalist. So she's been sacked over it. Um, Brilliant. And uh, now it looks like they might even be getting legislation to prevent this from happening in the future. Wow. So that's that's a big win. Yeah, yeah. So there are some wins. It's it's not all – I'm not mm. blackpilled just yet. So <laughs> good Well, stuff. I think this is the thing for me. I, I'm, a, I'm a, a, a big fan of uh, J.R.R. Tolkien. Yes. And, and Tolkien, I think, just had what I would call a very realistic hope. It it's almost sounds like pessimism, but it's not. He said, basically, history is one long defeat. If your view of the world is Christian, then we are winding down to a final hour. And he said, but there's still great hope and light to be found. I mean, if you think about his story, Lord of the Rings, it's very much about that, that even in the midst of great darkness, where mm -hmm. he all seems lost, there is actually still hope. There is community. There is goodness. And I, yeah. I, I think that's something we should never lose sight of. No, I, I love that. In fact, um, you bring up uh, something that reminded me of, you know, the, probably the last 15 years I've been going deeper, deeper down this rabbit hole. Um, just, you know, some of the things that I would have completely written off as conspiracy theories have, have turned out to be actual conspiracies, not theory at all, um, yeah. backed up by plenty of evidence. Um, won't go into all of those, but the deeper down the rabbit hole I go, the, the more I see a light at the end of it, which is um, God and a, and a Christian worldview. And, and I say that because all the, the things that we're seeing now have been written about. They've been prophesied. It's, it's mm -hmm. all through the Bible. The, the, the things that we're seeing have happened before and, you know, they will happen again. Um, and nothing else makes any more sense to me than, you know, what I read in the Bible. Yeah, and I think that's, you, that's what I think. I think you're right. Absolutely right. And I think there's a, there's a sense in which, too, there is a, one of the beauties, I think, of Christianity is that it actually helps you to grapple with the human condition. Mm -hmm. So you, the, 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 one of the big things it grapples with is the problem of evil and suffering, and it really does grapple with that. There might be some sort of fundamentalist sects who don't, who sort of, oh, well, it's all part of the plan, who cares? But right. authentic Orthodox Christianity has always grappled with that in a very deep and meaningful way. So that's a powerful tool to have mm -hmm. in, with the human condition. Secondly, is that, that Christianity really understands and makes sense of the world and the human condition. It, it, it understands we are fallen creatures who live in a fallen world. And when you get that piece of the puzzle, 
all of a sudden a lot of other things start to make sense. You realize, for right. example, that it's dangerous to have absolute power. You know, <laughs> you, yeah. you, you know, you you realize that we we shouldn't try and build utopias. You know, all those things. There's great wisdom there, I think, and and it it really does make sense of the world in a way that nothing else does. Yeah, no, I absolutely believe that. Well, Brendan, uh, for people that would like to follow you and, and hear more about your work, what's the best website or websites to find you? Well, what what they should probably do is go to Watch LFM. That's W-A-T-C-H, Watch, L for left, F for foot, and M for media. So watchlfm.com. Uh-huh. And that's got um, like links to my podcast. There's videos uh, that they can watch on there. And, and they can find the social uh, channels at the top of that homepage as well. So uh, my podcast is probably my regular weekly offering. And I have a patrons only podcast too that goes out each week, a couple of times a week. So um, that that's the big one. And uh, as I said, I'm looking to uh, launch after the New Zealand election, actually. I'll be looking to uh, launch yeah. um, a new initiative. I've, I'm not going to say too much, but it's something that hasn't been done before here. And I think there's Ooh. a lot of potential. So, so, cool. so that would be the place to go and, and sort of, keep abreast of what's happening. Well, that's great. Uh, can you come back and tell us about that once you've launched it? Oh, I, I absolutely will. You know, okay. I absolutely will. Awesome. <laughs> no no awesome. worries about that at all. Okay. Yeah. Um, and your podcast is, uh, the, the dispatches, the dispatches. Yep. That's yeah. And so you, if you look up the dispatches on, uh, or left foot media on, um, iTunes, on Spotify, iHeartRadio, Google, uh, Amazon play, you'll find it there and you can listen to episodes there. Excellent. Excellent. Well, I, I really, again, appreciate you taking time out of your super busy schedule to have a chat with us. And uh, folks, I encourage you to uh, go check out Brendan Malone's work. He's a, a great speaker. And uh, until next time, just please remember to do the right thing, be good, and keep asking questions.